Welcome to PhD with Women on It, Hack the Future. My name is Beata Young and today's PhD, Positivity Hack Delivered, will be by our guest, Gracie Brower. Topic, creating happiness, key shifts for great leadership. Episode 57 of PhD starts here. Let me remind you, this is a grassroots community that focuses on women on IT an inclusive forum of women in technology, startups, and female leaders who are supported by men as well. And I bring heart to that hustle because empathy is my motto. And empathy is critical when you are creating happiness, key shifts for great leadership. Before we dive into the topic, let me mention few highlights. Congratulations to Vanessa Vela on graduating with first class classification and certified AWS Solutions Architect Associate. Well done, Shiba Wilson, on her chapter in the book Voices for Leadership. She is sharing leadership lessons and practices to help others succeed despite painful life experiences. Shiba was our guest a couple of chapters ago in December, so you can check out her live stream after this show. What Penn Houston is doing with discarded packets of crisp is just amazing. What an amazing journey from Woman On It, Positivity Hug Delivered live stream to BBC, the one show. Do what you can, delegate or leave the rest, as she said during our live stream. That's her life's lesson quote. And she applies that mantra not only to the single-use plastics. In today's episode, we are going to learn creating happiness, key shifts for great leadership. Work and life have become increasingly complex and demanding, and these necessitate shifts in leadership. Leaders set the groundwork for their own and others' happiness. According to the study conducted by Said Business School at the University of Oxford, happy employees are 13% more productive. To be an effective leader, one must have a variety of soft, and hard skills. But happiness is a key ingredient in achieving success in any role. Leaders often overlook this important element of their leadership. To achieve engagement, happiness, and performance, great leaders need a fine mix of all skills, but empathy is central to their success. Dr. Tracy Brower is a PhD sociologist studying work-life fulfillment and happiness. She authored the books The Secrets to Happiness at Work and Bring Work to Life. She is the Vice President of Workplace Insight for Steelcase and a contributor to Forbes.com and Fast Company. She's an award-winning speaker with over 25 years of experience working with global clients to achieve business results. Tracy is an executive advisor to like-minded CODA Societies, and to the MSU Master Industrial Mathematics Program. Her work has been featured in TEDx, The Wall Street Journal, Work-Life Balance in the 21st Century Book, Globe and Mail in Canada, Inside HR Australia, HR Director. The numbers are countless of publications. 
If you're aiming to develop your leadership skills, tune in, ask questions and stay with us for the next hour. Positivity Hack Delivered is guaranteed. Let's discuss why happiness matters for great leadership, what are leadership shifts and how technology facilitates and fosters these skills. Tracy, where in the world are you today? Uh, thank you for having me. I'm just delighted and so impressed with your community. So I am in Michigan in the United States. I'm way on the west side of the state, close to Lake Michigan. So it's a little dreary, but it's starting to get a little warmer around here. Well, let's create happiness and positivity vibe. Today, I am in beautiful by nature uh, Turks and Caicos Island. Providenciales is the name of this area. And I am blessed to have this conversation actually inspired by your article when you talked about empathy economy and leadership. So uh, we discussed the empathy economy with Dr. Uh, Jackie Taylor a couple of episodes before and I was wondering what does happiness empathy has in common how does it lie into leadership mm -hmm. yeah empathy and happiness have so much in common one of the fundamental things that drives happiness is connections with other people. It's extraordinarily correlated when we're feeling connected to others, we're more likely to feel happiness, joy, contentment in our lives. And so when we are empathetic, when we are attuned to others, when we are listening, when we are understanding what people are going through, and then leaning forward to not only listen, but also respond where that's appropriate, that absolutely helps us connect with others. And that helps drive happiness. And it's absolutely reasonable that we are contributing to other people's happiness. And through that process, we're rewarded for it as well. As a matter of fact, that's one of our human instincts is we tend to repeat behaviors that feel good to us. That's the way we're wired. And so when we have that reward factor, when we feel good about helping others to feel good and by being attuned to them, that drives our own happiness as well. So it's really a win-win. So repeat behaviors, is it like a mirror image we are looking for? Mm. No, I think um, when we're really empathetic, we're reflecting with people, we're tuning in to what they're experiencing, we're paying attention. Like when we see someone on camera virtually or when we see someone in the office, we kind of say, huh, are you okay today? You seem a little different or wow, you seem really up today. What are you celebrating? We're attending to them. We're checking in, we're asking questions. And then when they start to share, we're demonstrating that we're actually listening and we're reflecting back what we're hearing from them. Not in a systematic way, not in a recipe format, but in a way that's really authentic. And helps us to really be present with them all the time. I think that's one of the things, um, you know, attention is our most scarce resource today with everything coming at us and with devices all around. Attention is a scarce resource. And so part of demonstrating empathy is literally being present, being focused, not being distracted by a device that happens to be on the table next to us. So it's really that presence and that reflection toward what other are others are feeling and, and toward us being able to put that into words and demonstrate that we've heard it. 
Right, uh, the ability to listen to others' stories and actually asking um, how they feel is very important. I think we have a question from actually a comment from Olga Vasina. Let's uh, go into that comment. 13% more effective. I think happy employees are even more effective than that study data. But whatever the number, it's absolutely true. I think, Olga, I hope you are happy with where you're working at the moment. We have another question, suggestion, or uh, actually a comment from Agatha Bellon. Win-win is our mantra. Huh? Way to go, Dr. Tracy. Absolutely. <laughs> Why is win-win our mantra? Well, I think, you know, win-win is, I don't know, maybe it's overused, but I think the reason that win-win works is that our, um, our experience, our happiness is so tied to community, right? Like we are members of the community. We have responsibilities to others. We have obligations to others. And we want to benefit from the community as well. And when communities are most sustainable, when they're most healthy, they fully meet individual needs and they fully meet the needs of the group. So to me, this idea of win-win is probably evergreen and meaningful in so many ways because it, it addresses that idea that I need something too from the community and that's really fair, but I also have responsibilities to give. I have obligations to give. And that's a beautiful thing. When we feel like we're connected, when we feel like we're part of the scaffolding, part of the webbing of a community and of a group, that is sustainable for the community and it's rewarding for individuals. So I love that. And I love the question about um, the positive benefits of happiness. There's been so much research on this. I actually uh, wrote an article that talks about the business benefits of happiness, the business case for happiness. And when people are happier, they're more physically healthy, they're more likely to set bigger goals and reach them, they're more likely to be retained in their organization, um, they're more likely in at a country level when countries' citizens are happier, they're more likely to have greater GDP as a country, uh, better physical health overall for its citizens, and better educational attainment. So there are all of these positive effects of happiness that starts us in a virtuous loop as well. Mm. Easier said than done, Dr. Tracy, because I think um, it's very easy to say, well, we need to create happiness, but how to start that virus of happiness in your work environment? Yeah, start the virus of happiness. That's emotional contagion, right? That's literally <laughs> the sociological term is emotional contagion. And it's so appropriate, right? I don't know if we can use the word contagion or virus anymore in the same way ever again. Mm. But Emotional contagion is when we bring our best energy, when we are working in cultures where we feel like we can bring our best, and that tends to energize others around us as well. So interesting about happiness, we have this myth of happiness that which there's a constancy myth. If we're doing it right, we're always happy. But the reality is that happiness ebbs and flows, and that's okay. We can have an overall sense of joy and contentment, even if we have a bad day now and then or a season of life that's difficult. And the choices that we make contribute so much to our happiness. We're empowered to create the conditions for happiness. And no choice will be perfect. There'll be things we love about our work and things that aren't our favorite. 
but as much as possible to have alignment. And so when we can create those conditions for happiness, we influence other people. Sociologically speaking, the number one way that people learn is through watching other people, listening to other people, experiencing other people. So how we show up is a very big deal. We all have more influence than we even realize. And so this idea of, of a positive virus of happiness or this idea of emotional contagion are really important because they're important for us and they're important for the influence that we have on others and how we show up. Mm. Emotional contagion. I love that. Um, I never heard of, but uh, definitely this is the, the good virus uh, we can spread. So, but there are some, I would say, unique um, substances, how we are born, the culture we are born in. So, for example, if you look at the Japanese culture, it's very serious. The Nordic culture is very serious. How do you break through that concept of, I have to be serious to be taken seriously? Mm, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? I do think that happiness looks different on different people. Like we, and we all need to be authentic, right? Like none of us are happy every single day of the week. And the way that I demonstrate positivity, maybe in a much more quiet, must, much less effusive way than you do, or he does, or she does, or they do. And so I think we need to be really embracing of all of the ways that we can demonstrate our best self. And I think this question that you're asking is, how are we strong and um, demonstrating power as women, strength and confidence as people, no matter who we are? I think a lot of that has to do with authenticity, right? Like, like we can be absolutely confident about where we feel strength. There's a wonderful quote that I like, you playing small doesn't serve the world. Sometimes I think women get messages that they should be a little quieter, don't intimidate people, don't come on too strong. And I think that we need to understand that message is there, but then also be expressive about where we feel like we've got strength, demonstrate that professional courage, be sensitive to other people around us so we're listening, so we're not being overbearing, so we're open to new ideas, but also feel good about demonstrating that strength and be open to learning and be authentic that none of us have this all figured out. Um, we are all at some level trying to find our way out of the paper bag. So we all have something to teach. We all have something to learn. Beautiful. You playing small doesn't save the world. Um, we have some uh, comments. I Esmeralda is saying, hi, Dr. Tracy and Beata. Good to be here again. Lovely to see you. Hi. We have also a question from In Love and In Pain. Hello, Dr. Tracy. I don't want to spread sadness to my friends. Should we share our problems to, with our friends? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that we need um, small groups of people that we can trust. I really do. Like I, 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 somebody asked me this actually in a keynote recently. They said, well, yeah, but if I share too many of my authentic moments, I might actually scare people. <laughs> um, and I think we probably all face that. So I think there is this balance. Like we want to be confident and appropriate and, you know, demonstrate good self-management in lots of contexts. 
And then I think we need those few people that we can just really go to and say, oh my gosh, I'm really struggling. I always like to say that the best friends are the ones with whom we can be our worst and the ones with whom we can be our best. Uh, the best friends are the people that will absolutely celebrate your highs with you and can be there with your lows, which I know sounds really cliche. We talk about that all the time. But to me, the takeaway message is that in order to be our best, we do need a place that we can let down our hair. We do need safe harbor support. Um, I wrote an article not too long ago about different people that you need in your network. And we need that you know, friend who knew us when, that kind of old friend, old colleague that has been around with us for a while. We need that challenging support, that person in our network who challenges us and pushes us and plays devil's advocate. And we need that person in our network who offers us safe haven support. And we need those people in our network who will be really honest with us and tell us when we've got spinach in our teeth, tell us when we've made a mistake, and then support us as we recover from that. So we need all kinds of people in our network. And I think both challenging and safe haven support are part of that network. So we have a like a balanced uh, diet of people to create our own happiness. Um, now, uh, let's go back to the secrets to happiness at work, how to be the prophet of of happiness, but also how to create happiness in your area. I was wondering, how do you create happiness when you know that one of your team members is suffering with mental hmm. problems, mm -hmm. let's say yeah. uh, depression, which is quite common nowadays? Yeah, I think this is a really important question. One of the things that's true is that the incidence of mental ch mental health challenges have increased significantly. In one study, 75% of people were feeling socially isolated. 57% of people were feeling depressed. There were in increasing numbers of people who felt anxiety and even difficulty juggling their thoughts. So first point is that this is on the rise. The bad news is it's on the rise. The good news is we're talking more about it. This is coming to the fore. And that gives us, I think, more of a culture socially where we can really support people and be more open about that support. As we think about leadership and supporting employees who may be struggling, I think the thing we absolutely want to do is check in and ask questions. First of all, pay attention, kind of know when we see something's different. Secondly, check in and ask questions. I hear a lot of leaders ask me, oh, I don't want to be intrusive. I don't want to be invasive. TMI, I want to be really, really respectful. And I think what leaders really need to do is just ask the question. And then they can take cues from the person. Do they want to talk about it? Do they not want to talk about it? And I think the other really important thing for leaders supporting people who may be going through hard times is the leader doesn't need to be a social worker. The leader doesn't need to be a mental health professional, but they do need to demonstrate that they're present and attentive. And they need to know the resources they can connect people with. So if there are HR resources, if there are EAP, employee assistance program resources, if there are resources associated with their organization or even within their community, I think those are the things that leaders need to be prepared for. So again, the, the human element of this is checking in, paying attention, and then being able to support people through resources and not put lots of pressure on ourselves that we need to be mental health professionals. But it's always a really good idea when we're demonstrating that connectedness, that empathy.
Right. Uh, it's also quite difficult for majority of team members when you're working in the hybrid environment. Um, how would you approach that challenge of not being able to speak face to face? Yeah, hybrid introduces whole new challenges, doesn't it? It's kind of the best of both worlds at some level, right? We have more choice, we have more opportunity for where we're going to work and when we're going to work, but it can introduce more distance and that distance can be detrimental to our relationships. I think for me, a really big part of hybrid is intentionality, right? Like, like when we're hybrid, we're more intentional about where we're working, what we're doing, which location serves us best, how we're working, when we're working. And because we have more choice, we can be more intentional about some of that. And at the same time, we're intentional about getting our work done and the tasks and wonderful responsibilities that we are uh, that we feel like we're making our contribution to. We are also needing to be more intentional about relationships and how we stay connected. So that might look like setting up a meeting when we normally might meet somebody in the hallway. That might look like more IMing. That might look like meetings where we spend just a little more time at the beginning with chit chat, right? Like sometimes I think we have this view in corporate America or organizations anywhere, like we want to get down to business and we want to be task focused. But if we're not seeing each other in the work cafe or the hallway, that moment at the beginning to kind of get grounded and feel connected can be especially important. I think we can also be intentional about where we meet up and if we're going to spend some time face to face and, and creating opportunities to do that. There's some wonderful research on friendship. And uh, there are lots of people who don't feel like they have a close friend, period. But one of the things that we also know is that 75% of friendships are made at work. And there's another study. I'm not going to get the number right. I think it's 82% of our diverse relationships come from work. So work ends up being a fairly social experience, even for introverts, right? You may only want a couple of close friends. You may not need lots and lots of friends. That's totally cool. But work ends up being a place where we get to know each other, where we get to know each other's talents and capabilities. And so the workplace, when we're really intentional about our work, intentional about how we connect, intentional about staying connected, it can absolutely be a place where we're quite nourished with relationships. Beautiful. Uh, I, I have to write down all the quotes that you just gave me. It's uh, quite a labor intense uh, moment, uh, I have to say. So, Tracy, I'm wondering, do you see, do you recognize what are today's leaders um, challenge, have the most challenging work nowadays or where they fail the most at the, at the moment? Yeah, this is so tough. Like leaders, leaders are in such a critical moment right now. Like I always say there's a leadership laser. That's always been true. This is people tend to focus on leaders. They tend to really listen like, oh, the leader used that word and not that word. What does that mean? Or the leader walked in and they had this look on their face that day. What does that mean? Right. People tend to focus on leaders anyway. But in this moment of chaos and difficulty and all that we've been through, leaders have additional pressure because they're they're like the single source of truth a lot of times. Like people are saying, there's so much coming at me. What should I do? What does it mean? And so leaders end up with this responsibility 
to talk about what it means to help people understand, like, what does it mean for our organization? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for your job? What does it mean for our department? And leaders don't always know the answers to those. And I think leaders need to get comfortable sharing what they know, sharing what they're still working on figuring out, sharing more versus less. Because a lot of times the way we work through ambiguity is by really paying attention to as much information as we can. So leaders have this new responsibility of more empathy toward people, sharing lots of information with people, being present and accessible. That's the other thing we know from research is that when leaders are more present and accessible, it tends to contribute to mental health. It also tends to contribute to cultures that are more constructive and productive. So this accessibility, right? Like I reach out to my leader and she's available or I ask my leader a question and she responds in a reasonable amount of time. Those seem like little things and they're really important things. I love there. There was a movie a million years ago called The Accidental Tourist. And uh, I don't know if it was the best movie in the world, but the really cool thing about it is the title, right? Like sometimes I think leaders are absolutely models and examples for others and they don't even mean to be right like a leader doesn't mean to be all that and all that uh, arrogant but because people are focusing on leaders leaders end up being in this kind of accidental uh, role of being models for others so leaders won't be perfect leaders can be authentic about not being perfect but when leaders show up in an accessible way a present way a way where they're sharing information a way where they're empathetic those all contribute towards success well we've seen uh, in a couple of examples some leaders are sharing their vulnerabilities and uh, how does that impact the happiness at work because being vulnerable, it's not really being happy, right? Quite often they are sharing their struggles with health problems or with their family problems. What would you be your advice, Trey? Yeah, I mean, this goes back to absolutely, leaders generate trust and credibility when they are open and vulnerable. Um, and again, they're being selective about that. They're not kind of, you know, open kimono all over the place. They're being smart and selective. But in general, we want to work with people who are authentic. Um, there, I actually, I, sorry, I'm saying this one more time. I just wrote an article about perfectionism and how, you know, we tend to have this view of, you know, we've got to be perfect and we want to be excellent. We want to do a good job, but perfectionism can actually distance you and separate you from other people because people feel like, oh my gosh, I'll never measure up or, oh my gosh, I can't uh, subscribe to that level of criticism or, oh my, that person isn't real anyway. So when we are vulnerable, it generates actually trust and credibility. When we ask questions, when we look for information from others, when we are clearly open to learning new things and open to diverse points of view, um, those are a very big deal for leaders. And so that vulnerability, is also important because it tends to bond us with others. There's a really great study that says that if we show up at work and don't feel like we can be fully ourselves, that detracts from our own mental health. 
And leaders need to have the opportunity to have their best mental health too. And that means being able to show up and be real. Um, one of the things I think the pandemic has done for us is it's given us a window into people's lives, right? We hear their dog barking or their child comes and sits on their lap during a meeting, or we hear the, you know, we hear that they're gonna take stew to an elderly neighbor after the meeting is done. That openness about our lives, I think, is really empowering, right? Like when I can say, nope, I'm not available for that meeting because I'm going to be with our daughter in Chicago that weekend, that can also empower others to feel like their whole selves matter, their whole people matter. And we value people for the work that they're doing, but we also value them for the whole person that, person that they're bringing to their responsibilities. So the leader uh, should not be seeking perfectionism because it's uh, not possible to be perfect. Um, but on the other hand, uh, a leader is attracting people in the vicinity. And also, whoever is in the team of that leader is reflecting their work. So let's say there is somebody who is not quite perfect in your vicinity. And what would be your advice? How would you react, Tracy, being a leader of somebody who's slightly behind everybody else? Yeah, it's a really, really great question, right? There's a there's a great quote I like that a culture is significantly determined by the worst behavior it will tolerate. Um, and so what that says to me is that, you know, how sometimes we'll have people around us and, and we'll be like, wow, that you'll hear this at an organization, right? Wow, that person is, you know, really, really a nice person, but they can't quite get it done. But they're so nice and their their behavior is not being dealt with. Right. Or maybe there's somebody who's brilliant and they're a rainmaker and they're bringing in sales, but they're not the greatest person to work with. I think we need to really hold each other accountable, hold team members accountable for all of those elements of performance, our task performance, our relationship performance, our fit with the culture, our ability to stretch with others. And so when we see people that aren't measuring up, aren't um, performing in the way that they need to perform, I think we want to obviously give them that feedback, give them time to improve, ask questions in order to understand if there are things that are getting in their way, barriers that we can remove, and then finally really hold them accountable. If it's not a great fit, Fit. Because if it's not a great fit and somebody isn't performing brilliantly, they usually know it and they usually can find something better somewhere else. I heard an HR, a CHRO say one time that um, she was talking about the interview process and she was saying, there is absolutely the right job for you. It may not be with our company, but there is a right job for you. So the, the right answer, right, is helping people to be their best and fit even if it's not in their current role. So helping them to grow, helping them to find other things where that's necessary. And I think there's a little debate about perfectionism too, right? Like, like we absolutely want to be excellent. We absolutely want certain things to be perfect. The next time I board an airplane, I want that pilot to do his or her job perfectly. Um, and it's also reasonable for us to kind of push back on ourselves and say, gosh, what are the places where we absolutely need perfection? What are the places where we can absolutely be excellent and where we can invest our energy in the right kinds of things, where we're not overthinking, over processing, over obsessing? 
we want to find that right balance where we're doing awesome work and we're pushing ourselves to be better all the time, but we're not to the point that we're robbing ourselves of energy or robbing others around us of energy either. Right. We always remember the best uh, restaurant. We always remember the best hotel experience, but also we remember the worst one. So we never remember the medium, the, the ones that were okay, but not quite perfect. So uh, is there a way to create the perfection, but also have the balance within the work environment? Yeah, boy, that's a great question, too. You know, it's really interesting. There is some wonderful research about what we remember. And uh, just to your point, I love that you brought that up. And the research suggests that it's a peak last. So if you think about like you you spent the day at Disneyland and, you know, you had this great one ride and oh, my gosh, the line for this other one. And oh, it was really hot during the day. And later on, we had this awesome moment where we got to meet the princesses, whatever you like at Disney. Right. Um, what we tend to remember were our peak experiences like that best moment. And we tend to remember the last experience we had. So, you know, maybe we left the park and we had, I don't know, Mickey ears on and we got a shot with the family. Right. And so as we look back at a season of our career or a task that we did or a project team that we participated on, we tend to remember the peak and the last. And so that is part of it as well is like, how do we how do we create memorable experiences for people? How do we attend to some of those details with people? And the, the ways that we can think about creating happiness and creating the conditions for happiness are when we give people a sense of purpose and have them feel like they're really contributing to something that matters. When we um, emphasize gratitude, we're um, appreciative of what people do and we're attending to details that they can also um, feel gratitude about. When we create opportunities for connection and bonding among the team, when we give people what they need to perform really well, and when we give people the opportunity to learn and stretch, we can unpack lots of those. But um, but those are some of the things we can do as leaders to create the conditions for happiness for ourselves and for others around us and make sure that we've got all those great moments that we can remember along the way. Absolutely. Um, I have to say that uh, some time ago when I was employing people, uh, especially the younger generation, had a problem answering this vital question when was the last time you've done something more than was required from mm. your work and i think this is how you create memories by giving some attention to why either it's your customer or your team member um and you do more than is required uh, something that is going extra mile we have some questions and lovely comments from olga who tracked you down tracy and she brought this article about uh, five powerful ways to support women fabulous stuff Thank you, Olga, for bringing that to our attention. I, Esmeralda, is asking, hi, Dr. Tracy, mm -hmm. is it okay to share our struggle, struggles, problems with strangers? Mm -hmm. They say we can get a fair judgment since they don't know us personally. 
Mm -hmm. That's a provocative question. That's a really good one. Gosh, I want to think about that one. I, maybe I'll have to write an article about it or something because that's the way I think. You know, I think, I think sometimes it depends on their role. Like, I think sometimes if we share kind of like out of the blue with somebody that's not expecting it, it might have an awkward factor, right? Like if it's the barista and I kind of start going down a path about, you know, what's going on for me, that might, that might be a little bit awkward. But there's some beautiful research about how our interactions with strangers or people who are very distant from us in our community can be really nourishing. Um, so the barista or the dry cleaner, person, the dry cleaner or the person at Target or uh, the person, you know, that you, I don't know, run into while you were each getting gas or something. Um, and you can talk about gas prices together. Uh, those moments can be really nourishing. And I think sometimes like the way that we build relationships, most people say that true friendship is built over about 60 hours. Um, that's based on some research on friendship. And what happens with friendship and trust is there's this like reciprocity that happens. I share a little bit and then you share a little bit more. And then I open myself just a little bit more. And then you share something that might be just a little more sensitive for you. And there's kind of this building process that happens. And I think that part of like getting objective perspective is probably to know someone well enough that you can feel like you can share openly. Um, and to your point, there may be people who are a little bit less well known to you who might have that objective point of view. So it's probably that balance of not sharing so much that it's TMI, but too much information, but um, really branching out and reaching out to people that you may not know as well and who can kind of add value to the day, even if it's just a quiet exchange or even if it's just a superficial exchange. Uh, that's, that's quite interesting what you were saying, because I can think of a couple of conversations I had, even with a cashier. Um, it's very interesting when you approach them with a completely different mindset rather than automatic saying you know i'm great how are you you actually meaningfully ask you know or say how your day was because i think um it was quite shocking to me when i was uh, approached by my husband i talked about uh, some things when i was uh, all these years back in london working in a store and he asked me some meaningful question and i thought well this is somebody very interesting and he's actually asking me that question not just out of politeness but because he's interested so i think this is how you create happiness by asking meaningful questions and being genuinely interested in the answer so thank you tracy for reminding us of creating this environment of happiness, uh, being a great leader. Um, you told us about uh, the, um, the distance that is uh, stifling our uh, culture um, of uh, our leadership roles and uh, also about the fact that it's very challenging to be a leader in the post-COVID world. Now, um, you talked about uh, what uh, most leaders uh, fail um, at doing. What do you think, uh, or if there is a difference between female leaders versus 
men leaders. And I'm not trying to create here battle of sexes. Did you notice something or you've got so much research, maybe we can hear something interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there is some great new research. I just published it in an article called The Good, the Bad and the Ugly, um, Research on Women and Leadership. Uh, so you could look there for more of the details. But one of the things um, that was in the research is that women are often perceived as the preference when there is uh, chaos or crisis. People prefer women in a situation of chaos or crisis. Um, leadership is perceived when people demonstrate things like um, ambition, smarts, confidence, um, down further on the list are things like caring or community. Those are still important, but when you ask people who are leaders and what characteristics are they expressing, those are some of the things that they say. Um, interestingly, there are, um, when women lead, there is a perception that people have better ability to support their work-life navigation. When women are leading, there's a greater perception that they're supporting uh, DE&I, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, there is a preference for women on the parts of some people um, in this in this particular study, but there's also a lot of great, brilliant leadership coming from men as well. Um, it's very much a mixed bag. One of the uh, problems is that women face a likability challenge. This has been demonstrated through multiple studies and there's um, kind of statistical evidence that if a man is leading a um, uh, group and he's perceived as not being very likable, people will still pitch into the group and cooperate. If a woman is leading a group and she's per perceived as not being as likable, quote unquote, likable, people may be less likely to engage. And so women face a likability bias. Um, sometimes women can also face a work-life bias. Like if, uh, if a woman's doing brilliant work professionally, people might say, yeah, but how is she doing with her family? Or like, or op the opposite of that, if a woman is, you know, brilliant in the way that she's perceived as being a parent or a partner, somebody might say, yeah, but how does she perform professionally? The thing that I think about the research is this, it can be disheartening, it can be frustrating to hear that kind of thing. But I think it's important that we just know the terrain. If we're gonna go on a hike, we wanna know temperature, weather, altitude. We want to know the condition of the uh, trail and what kind of footwear we need and how we should be dressed based on how warm it is. To me, that is understanding the context and the challenges that women face. We've got to know what's facing us. And then we need to be ourselves and support others. We need to bring it. We need to own it. We need to be authentic about what we are brilliant and capable at, what we're still learning. And we need to absolutely support others and, and bring each other along. And so I think that is some of the data that we face. The other thing that is just my personal, uh, personal thought is that I really don't as much appreciate the studies that say, oh, people prefer women because I don't want you to prefer me because I'm a woman. I want you to prefer me because I've got all these other talents or capabilities or skills. I want you to prefer me for those, not because of my gender. So, and I guess the last thing I would just say on the gender question, um, 
the, all of the studies that I've seen compare women and men. They're not necessarily comparing women and all other genders. So the, the study, I just haven't seen those studies. Maybe they exist, but it's just worth saying that in general, the studies tend to look at gender in those ways. Well, it's time for me to quote Cindy Gallup, who says that uh, if you're concerned about gender, um, you're being chosen because of your gender, get over it because there are so many men being chosen because they are men. Well, that's so. fair. <laughs> that's a really fair point. Lean into it, take advantage of it. Absolutely. And then be absolutely. It's a great point. Absolutely. Yes. Well, I would even say don't lean in. You just find your own path to the future as a female role model. So definitely, Tracy, I'm, I'm really grateful for these points. I would like to also ask you, because you told us to prepare for that hike, to go up the ladder and break the glass ceiling for female leadership. Uh, one thing that we also face, as um, and this is related to humor, we tend to not take women seriously if they are, for example, showing up with their smiles or they are laughing on pictures or they are perceived as less serious. Mm -hmm. How would you take that challenge? Yeah, that's a tough one. There is research that when people are too cheerful, they may be perceived with less leadership capability. Again, that's like, you know, the research, I, I'm, I'm only the messenger, so, um, so on that one. But I think it's a balance. Like, I think, of course, great communication skills are about knowing your audience, knowing your context, knowing who you're talking to, knowing what your message is, and adjusting that still with um, integrity, still with a sense of who you are and your identity, but you're going to adjust enough so people can hear you, right? Like, like if I'm talking to somebody who's very fact-based and analytical, I'm going to bring my best analytical game, but I'm still going to be myself in that process. If I'm talking to somebody who's more um, emotional or more imaginative, I might use more analogies in my discussions with them, but I'm still going to bring myself and the integrity to that conversation. So I think it's absolutely real that we can be really effective when we adjust who we're talking to and how we're interacting and how we're relating. And I think we need to be ourselves. I really do. I think the minute that we decide that we shouldn't laugh or we shouldn't be too cheerful or we shouldn't be too sensitive, we're doing ourselves a disservice. And I think the thing that's so important is that the differences between individual people are so much more meaningful than the differences we can ascribe based on groups or generalizing based on any characteristic, gender or otherwise. So I think we want to, as much as possible, kind of model um, uh, embracing others, model the idea that we are open to diverse points of view, model the ability to work with lots of different people who have different kinds of personalities. And when we can kind of bring that to the community, then I think we also earn the right, and we get this right anyway, to be ourselves. And so when we model that behavior of being ourselves, I think we make the whole community uh, smarter, better, and stronger.
Well, the, another point I would like to make, Tracy, is uh, diversity of thought, because apparently this is quite often missing and uh, we have to welcome other points of view and uh, create this environment of happiness about new different ideas, whatever might happen. Um, and now we have questions and comments from Olga Vasina. Uh, Olga is saying, way to go, I, Esmeralda, you're inspiring our brilliant guest today. Now there is a win-win. Indeed. And we have a comment from Patrick, EIPO Vit. How fascinating, Dr. Tracy Brower, that it takes 60 hours to get to know somebody, but 10,000 hours to master a skill. Clearly, humans have more intuition to meet new friends than they may realize. Oh, that's a go. cool point. I like that. <laughs> there you go. You're not the only one bringing these quotations and inter interesting statistics. We have a question from Marianne. Hello, Dr. Tracy. Thank you so much. So many insights. I learned so much from you. Well, Marianne, I'm sorry, uh, you don't have questions. Usually you have questions. So we do not have any more time for more questions. Uh, I love Tracy's personality, Natalie says. That's great to hear that, Natalie. Thank you so much. Now, we have got time for our special questions now, Tracy. What advice would you give to females to help their career as a leader? All right. Advice for females to help their career as a leader. Boy, I don't have this all figured out. This is just my little my little lens today. But I think we want to know ourselves, know our strengths, know our weaknesses. I think we want to connect, build relationships, build rapport. I also think we want to act. We want to take appropriate risks. We want to demonstrate professional courage. And then I think we want to reflect, just really always be thinking about what worked well, what worked less well, what might we do differently the next time. So I think those four things are a very big deal in terms of advice for all of us in terms of our career, in terms of the way that we lead. Uh, absolutely. And also I would add your uh, point that you made earlier, preparing for that hike. And it's not, uh, you know, short run. It's a long, long marathon. So you have to prepare for that. So what is your strategy for problem solving as a happy leader? Mm. Yeah, I, I was really thinking deeply about this again, right? Like we all face problems all the time and have to make decisions. Um, and I think the first thing is to keep your head, right? Like, okay, that is significantly correlated with leadership is calm and the ability to kind of keep your head under pressure. Um, and then for me, I always like to understand the terrain, like really understand the problem, understand what the information is. I like to gather information for potential solutions. I like to get um, ideas and input from others. And then I really like to test and try. If I'm solving a problem, I want to test something over here or test something over there. Instead of trying to figure out a big, giant, grand scheme, how might we iterate toward um, that big, grand scheme so we can get feedback along the way? Um, so that iteration and that learning along the way, I think, are so important to the process. Uh, fabulous advice. Thank you so much for that. And how do you manage happiness around somebody's ideas not being taken on board? Hmm. Yeah, this is really important, right? I think that um, 
one of the one of the things to know is that we all have an instinct to matter. And one of the worst things we can say to someone is, nah, wait on EJ. We're good. Just, you know, we're we're all good here. No need to, no need to participate. We want to be invited. We want to be included. We have an instinct to matter. And so I think um, one of the things to do as a leader is to be really clear about what kind of participation we need. So when we invite someone to the table, we're clear about what that participation needs to look like. I think another thing from a leadership perspective is to set really clear expectations and to be clear about how decisions are going to be made. Like, I'm going to listen to input and then we're going to have a democratic process or I'm going to listen to input and then I'm going to retain the decision making process or we're going to listen to input and then we're we're going to have another decision-making process that and, and explain to people how that will work. If you feel like your input hasn't been heard, then I think there's that choice making, right? Like, did you misunderstand how you were going to participate and whether that idea would be kind of final idea or whether it would be part of another process? Um, if that, if you're being sort of shorted and your input isn't being heard, I think we need to stand up. I think we need to stand up for each other. I think we need to be assertive about our own viewpoints and about the extent to which we are um, articulating why it's important that our um, our voice is heard. Um, and so I think it's it's a it's a balance of like was my input not taken because it wasn't the way the process worked, which is fair, or was my input not taken because there was an, a level of inequity? And then we need to probably lean in and have that professional courage to speak up for ourselves, speak up for others. I wrote an article about professional courage that talked about making that decision about when you sort of speak up for yourself, when you speak up for others, when you decide that it's not that big a deal to you on certain circumstances. And that intentionality and that decision-making process about when we speak up and how we are assertive for ourselves is an important one as women and as leaders. Well, it's, it's a lot of uh, info, uh, but also I think you touched on a very important topic, which is females, uh, when they are, for example, facing the boardroom, uh, their input is not taken unless it's repeated by a male in the, in the group. So this is a very important topic to have the courage to face and uh, be able to speak up. Uh, now, is there a book that you would um, like to reflect on and you wish you read it before you started your career? Mm. You know, one of my favorites is called The Village Effect by Susan Pinker. Um, it's this beautiful book that has research on all of the ways that we crave connection, all of the ways that we need community, all of the ways that community is utterly connected to both our morbidity and our mortality. It's, it's literally connected to our health, to our well-being emotionally, cognitively, physically. Um, and I think if I would have read that, like I think I've always valued relationships, but it just, it's really beautifully written in terms of all of the ways that it reminds us of the importance of those connections and how those can be everlasting and keep the community evergreen and keep each of us as well as we can be as well. Hmm. Beautiful. Uh, Tracy, uh, we have very limited time, so I think it's time for our favorite question. Um, would you uh, 
invite somebody to have this private breakfast and where would you go to have this private breakfast to talk about anything? I love that question. You know, I have been so moved by the people of Poland um, welcoming, sheltering, nurturing Ukrainian refugees. There was this amazing image that was on our news. It was this gentleman standing like in a subway or a bus station or a train station. And he was holding a sign that had like a stick figure of, you know, a, the number of people that he could take into his home. And so I would have breakfast with the Polish people who are welcoming the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian refugees. And I would I would have breakfast at a local restaurant that I love that has the best food ever called the windmill. And I would just really love to spend time with them because I think they are the examples of the best of humanity, the best of our values, the best of community and connection and nurturance. And so that's who I would have breakfast with. Thank you so much, Tracy. That's very touching to hear. As a Pole uh, myself, I have to say that it's quite tremendous uh, what's happening in Polish borders. And also the fact that uh, so far uh, Poland managed to welcome to their homes without the shelters, special shelters. There is 40 million people living in Poland, 4 million Ukrainians already in Poland, sheltered by families without the government, much of government help. So I really appreciate that, Tracy. I agree that would be a beautiful time. Uh, no man will make a great leader who wants to do it all himself or to get all the credit for doing it, Andrew Carnegie says. So uh, now we have uh, reached the end of our show. I would like to thank you very much. Um, can you please give us, before we end, your life lesson quote. And can you share how that was relevant to you in your life? Mm, my best quote that I just adore is, enjoy the little things in life because someday you will realize they were the big things. Robert Brault said that. And I just, I feel like gratefulness is such an important part of our, of our lives, of our experience. When we're grateful, we're happier. When we're grateful, we're present. When we're grateful, we are connected to the things around us that are most important to us. And so that one's been really important important to me. And I think it's been important as the children have been uh, growing up as well. Our, my husband and I have a daughter who's 24 and a wonderful new son-in-law and a son who's 20. And you just think like, oh my gosh, everybody says this when they're little, the time goes so fast, but it really does. And all those little things, all those moments that we had as they were growing up, all those moments we're continuing to have are so much a part of the best of experience, the best of relationships, the best of being human. So that's the quote I like most. Beautiful. And I would like to add to another quote uh, that I always use at the end of the show. When you focus on the positives, the positives get more positive and it goes together with the happiness. And the author of today's quote is Helen Keller, 
who is an American author, disability rights advocate, political activist, and lecturer. She lost her sight and her hearing after a bout of illness at the age of 19 months. She helped to change perceptions of the deaf community and the blind community. Keller was a role model and proved to the world that people with disability are just as capable of having the determination and confidence. If you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude, as Maya Angelou said, whose birthday was on Monday uh, this week. Today is your day to hug the future, hug the positivity you want. I would like to thank you, Tracy, for this beautiful discussion. And also, I would like to thank Olga Vasina, Agatha Bell, and I, Esmeralda, in Love and in Pain, IPOV, in Patrick's Opinion, and Natalie Lianto for your great comments and questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And don't.